If you're ready to gain a lifetime of real estate secrets in just minutes a day, then this podcast is for you. For the past 40 years, Dolph DeRoos, the king of commercial real estate, has helped thousands of new and experienced investors turn properties into cash and dreams into reality. If you're ready to make more money, do bigger deals, and reach greater levels of wealth through real estate, then we have exactly what you need on Buy Big with Dolph DeRoos. Hey there, Dolph DeRoos here, and today I want to talk about four questions that you should ask whenever you're looking at buying commercial real estate. And the first question is, what is the purchase price of this building? Of course, you need to know that. We need to know what we're talking about. And you need to know, is it half a million or a million dollars? But the second question, which is related to this, is what is the replacement cost of this building? In other words, you've got a commercial building, it's 10,000 square feet, say it's a warehouse, it's on the market for a million. What would it cost to build a new one? Because I'm telling you, if you could buy the land and the materials on the labor to build an equivalent building, and it would only cost you $800,000, then why on earth would you pay a million dollars for this building? So the first comparison has to do with what are you paying for it and what is the, the cost of finding an alternative? You've got to make sure that it's in your favor. And then the third question, which is an obvious one, is what are the rentals? Let's talk about rentals per square foot because then it doesn't matter how many square feet it happens to be. But let's say they're getting $14 a square foot for this warehouse. Is that good or bad? Well, we don't know. It depends on what market rentals are. Now, let's say market rentals are only $10 a foot and they're getting $14 a foot. Does that make it a good deal? And I know at least some of you will be saying, well, yeah, if the market rent is $10 a foot and they're managing to get 40% more, which is $14 a foot, then that's a great deal. And I would caution you into thinking that for the following reason. Let's say that after three months, through no fault of the tenant, the tenant's business falls over. In other words, they go out of business and you're going to have to find a replacement tenant. The market is only $10 a foot and you'll never get that $14 a foot again. In fact, one could even try and figure out, was that rental set artificially high, not by a bona fide tenant who have to be paying $14 a foot, but by a friend of a friend of the landlord who said, listen, I need to sell this building. If we can jack the rent up to something artificially high, like 40% over market, then we'll talk some sucker into buying it based on that rental. And then after three months, your business can go under. Who cares? We'll wriggle out of it. I'm not saying this happens all the time, but trust me, it does happen. So when market rentals are $10 a foot and they're getting $14 a foot for this property, I don't see that as a good sign. I'd rather have a situation where they're getting $14 a foot, but market rentals are say $18 a foot. Because then you know that if you acquire this building at the next rent review, you should be able to bring the rental up to market. Or even if the tenant opts not to renew the lease, say the lease has come to an end, then because the market rentals are $18 a foot, you should be able to rent out this place in the open market at $18. So the four questions we ask are, what is the cost of the building? What is the replacement cost? What is the rental per square foot? And what are market rents per square foot? And if you can buy the building for less than replacement cost, and if the rentals are less than market rentals, then usually, that points to the fact that you might be onto something. I say might because it still depends on where it is. 
if the warehouse is in a flood prone area or if it's on a low lying coastal area that in the last year alone has been flooded by seawater three times, no matter how appealing the deal could sound to you, it's probably not a good idea to go ahead with this investment. So there are many factors that constitute a great investment deal. And while these four questions are what I would consider quite important, I wouldn't say they're the be all and end all. What I always look for in a commercial building is do I think I've got an opportunity to increase the value? And how much increase the value? Well, there are 101 ways of massively increasing the value of any property, residential, industrial, hospitality, commercial. Way more increase in value than the cost of making whatever change you have to make to affect that increase. That's one of the things I love about real estate. You know, you've got a home, a three bedroom home, by building an extra bedroom and turning it into a four bedroom home, the cost of that addition might be $30,000, depending on size and materials and area and all that sort of thing. But by doing so, you could increase the value by 50 or $70,000 just by painting a house or a commercial building for that matter. It might only cost two or $3,000 to paint, but the perceived value and therefore the sale price would go up by $30,000. All right, or you might have trouble getting a tenant for a commercial property, but just by painting it, the interior or the exterior, or putting some awnings on it, you can increase its appeal and then suddenly you find you've got a tenant. And you might think, well, that wouldn't make much difference to a factory or a warehouse, but many commercial premises aren't used for factories or warehouses where I admit the looks aren't that important. If it's a coffee shop or a restaurant or a flower shop where they sell, you know, freshly cut flowers, the looks of the building is gonna have a massive impact. So just repairing broken windows and putting some flower beds in and repairing the concrete path leading up to the front door and putting lighting on it so that at night it's lit up beautifully. And even if it's closed at night, people driving by say, oh wow, look at that, honey. There's a new flower shop there. Someone might say that as a hint for their spouse to go in there and buy some of what they sell. Who knows? But the thing is, by doing nothing, you won't change the value of anything. And I love it that with real estate, especially commercial real estate, you can get creative and start to change the value of the very things that we're talking about. And it's this changing of value that, that gives you so much scope for creativity. Now, I always say that when you have a creative mind, you can run rife with real estate. In fact, some of you know my background is electrical engineering. I studied electrical engineering for eight years, not the easiest course around. I ended up getting a PhD in it. And people often say to me, but Dolph, you don't work as an engineer. Wasn't that a monumental waste of time? Wouldn't there have been better training to get into commercial real estate? And I dispute that because when you think about it, most of the things that you can study are analysis subjects. You analyze what's there. If you study English, you take a sentence, amongst other things that you do, and you pull it to pieces and say, this is the subject, and this is the verb, and this is the object, and you label them, and then you put it all back together again. When you study history, you study what's happened in the past and pull it to pieces and label it and then consider it. Chemistry, physics, maths, you study what's there, pull it to pieces, look at the components, the molecules and the atoms or whatever it is, the formulae behind it, and you put it back together again. So most things are analysis subjects, but there's a very small number of things that are not analysis subjects, but rather synthesis subjects, where you create something. Sculpture is a synthesis subject. Creative writing, synthesis. Architecture 
is synthesis. You're creating something out of nothing. And believe it or not, engineering is a synthesis subject. Here's the problem, find the solution, right? We want to send a man to the moon. Well, we have to overcome the gravitational force of the earth. You need to know the formula. You need to come up with new propulsion systems that can let us escape from the earth's gravitational pull. And that's perhaps a weak example from a long time ago. But I still think that landing on the moon was one of the great achievements of mankind. And now we're looking at going to Mars and other places. But it all requires creativity. And in that sense, when people say, what a monumental waste of eight years to study engineering, especially if you don't end up being a practicing engineer for every day of your life. And I dispute that because they say, no, I had eight years of training on how to be creative in just about anything. And all that commercial real estate is, it's a manifestation of your ability to be creative, right? How can we increase the rental value of the space? Because to the extent that you can double the rental value of a piece of commercial real estate, you've doubled its value. And by doubling its value, you double the amount that the banks will lend you for it. And as I always say, if you can take the rental income of a property from whatever it is to double what it currently is, then the value will also double. And when the banks only give you 50% loan to value ratio, that means they take 50% of the appraised value and give you in the form of a mortgage only half of that. If we've doubled the value of a building from its purchase price and the bank only gives us half of this doubled value, then the bank will lend you the purchase price. Now I know for some of you skeptics out there and diehard people, it's not quite that simple. Because if we find a building on the market for a million dollars and we think we can get a tenant for double the current rental and therefore in the future it will appraise at two million, we can't go to the bank today and say, listen, we think kind of that the value will probably double. So will you give us a million dollars now? He's going to say, no, you buffoon. It's on the market for a million. That's what you're paying for it. And the bank will lend the less of the purchase price or the appraised value. That's how it works. And I would have to agree with these skeptics and say, yeah, that is actually accurate. So there have to be a few twists to it. We can't get a loan based on an appraisal of $2 million if we don't have the new tenant in there yet. So how does it work? Will we say to the seller, we want to buy this property and we're going to sign the contract today, but can we do settlement or closing, whatever you want to do it, or call it, can we close in three months time? And in the meantime, we want the right of access to start making improvements to the building. And by the way, don't worry, if after three months we don't close, you'll have a building that's had improvements made to it. So you'll be no worse off in that sense. Usually they'll say yes. And in the meantime, of course, we have to find that new tenant and get them to sign up on a lease agreement. And with any luck, get them to move in already. Because if for two of those three months, the new tenant paying the 200,000 a year instead of 100,000 a year, or maybe it's an additional tenant because half the space was vacant. So the original tenant's still there, but we found a tenant for the second portion of it. If he's been in there for a couple of months, and then we can go to the bank. And this is basically what you say. You say, listen, Mr. Bank Manager, I know that banks are very conservative and that by your own internal rule, you accept the lesser of the purchase price or the appraised value. I know that. And I fully admit that I'm only paying a million dollars for this building. In fact, here's a copy of the purchase and sale agreement, the contract to buy it. And I admit that it states that the purchase price is a million dollars. However, that was three months ago, Mr. Bank Manager. 
And in the meantime, luck has fallen upon me and I managed to find another tenant to bring the total rental income from 100,000 to 200,000. Mr. Bank Manager, it has doubled in rental value and even your own in-house conservative appraiser has said that surely this building is now worth $2 million. So yes, paying a million for it, but your own appraiser agrees that it is currently worth $2 million because of things I've done to the building. I improved this, I changed that, and in doing so, I attracted an extra tenant or a new tenant, as the case may be, paying double the rent of what was being paid when the building was put up for sale. So I think you will agree, Mr. Bank Manager, and if you don't, I think your opposition banks will agree that it's gone up in value. And usually they'll reluctantly say, yes, it's not what we normally do or how we evaluate it because we like to see that the new tenant has been paying rent for at that level for 300 years. And you can say no one lives that long. And in 300 years, this industry will have changed. I'm exaggerating. They'll say, we like to see the tenants been there for six years. But you just say, well, that's not the case right now. So here's the offer. You can fund this property. It's got the rental income to support your mortgage payment, or you can opt not to do it. Choice is yours. Um, I'm going to go ahead. Um, you, know, you want to have the attitude. You don't want to be mean to him, but you want to say something like, listen, this is such a good deal from my perspective. I'm determined to buy it. And at the end of the day, Mr. Bank Manager, where the money comes from, the mortgage funding, it doesn't really matter because once the mortgage has been put in place and I'm paying mortgage interest and principal every month, it won't matter whether it came from bank A, bank B or bank C. But I want to go ahead with this. I'd like to do more business with you and just see what they say. Will it work every time? No, I'm no you know, fool that thinks that any bank you go to that this will work, but you've got to be willing to go to 20 banks. Because I think if you go to 20 banks, you'll find that after three or four or five, you'll probably improve your spiel, by the way, and hone your skills of presenting it. But after a while, you'll find a bank that says yes. And um, I once had a situation where a, um, a lady came to me and she said, Dolph, I did everything you said and I tried it. I went to the bank, I told them what I was doing, I applied for the mortgage and they turned me down. And she was just about in tears, she was devastated. And my question to her was, what did the other bank say? And she said, but Dolph, I've been going to this bank for 18 years. In other words, I'm so loyal to this bank, I couldn't imagine going to the opposition, that would be seditious. And I said, it seems to me that you're offering your, your bank more loyalty than they're offering you. Maybe they need a wake up call that if they don't provide funding on a really good deal, you're going to pursue getting funding somewhere else. And so she did, and of course she got the funding eventually. And because sometimes you have to go to more than one bank. And sometimes a bank manager, for whatever reason, it might be a personal reason, nothing to do with the deal or you, or his perception of the deal or his perception of you, he's just not in a good mood and he turns it down. And another manager at another bank, or maybe even another branch says, yes, I'll do this. But if you go to banks with any degree of regularity, and especially if they're good deals, and I encourage you only to put offers in on good deals, why would you want to have an offer accepted on a bad deal? If that's true, then eventually the banks will realize that what you're offering them is really good investment opportunities. And by doing that, they're going to end up saying to you when you come and they'll look at the deal and they say, oh my gosh, where did you find this one? And eventually one or other of them will say what happened to me. And I remember the, the name of the bank manager involved in the bank of the year and everything. He said, Dolph, 
If I give you a commitment to fund this property right now, will you give me a commitment to accept our funding and not go to the opposition banks? And that spurred me to come up with another idea, and I don't have enough documents here to demonstrate it, but when you make your proposal for finance, which might be a 20-page document, depending on how big the building is, or a five-page document, however big it is, print 10 copies of them and have them in a stack and put them in a stack in your arm. And when you come to see the bank manager, come in and say, oh, I have here your copy. Let me say, oh, here's your copy. Oh, wait a minute, excuse me, that's the wrong one. That's for Chase Bank. Here's your one. This is for Wells Fargo, whatever the name of the bank is, and pull it out. And if you think that's a bit rude and in their faces, it kind of is. But you want to let them know that you are going to other institutions, financial credit unions, insurance companies, anyone who might lend you the money to do this. Because when they know that, then they'll know that they have to be a little bit in competition in order to get your business. And at the end of the day, banks are in the business of borrowing money from depositors and paying a pathetically low interest on that. And then they turn around and take that same money and lend it out to real estate investors like you and I. Is it mainly real estate investors? Absolutely. They don't lend much money on businesses. And when they do, it's a much higher interest rate, like 12 or 14%. They don't lend money for you to buy crypto. They don't lend money for you to buy stocks, bonds, certificates of deposit, treasury bills. Treasury bills are almost guaranteed money. If a treasury bill is not paid out on maturity date, it means the government has gone bankrupt and still banks won't lend you money to do that. The margins are too small. Real estate is the way banks go. They want to lend money to real estate investors and they'll give you every incentive to do so. They'll have ads saying things like, if you apply for a mortgage through our bank, this month we'll forego the application fee. This month we'll waive the, the points that they normally charge up front. So it's just a simple way for them to encourage you to invest in real estate. Banks want you to invest in real estate. Or the way I always put it is, banks want to lend you money. Let them give it to you. Make it easy for them. Write your proposal for finance. In fact, we should have a session on how you write up a proposal for finance that makes it extraordinarily difficult for a bank to turn you down. Because once you've mastered that art, it's actually fun to create these documents. And I'll even contemplate giving you a template that you can use. But I have one request if I were to give you this template. And that is, please change it and put your own numbers and names in there. There was a period of time where about once a week, I'd get calls from bank managers all over the world saying, I've had another one of your students apply. And I'd say, well, how did you know? And they would say, well, they used your template, but they forgot to change the name. They used the name of the property that Dolph used in the example. They used the numbers that Dolph used. And that won't help you get the mortgage funding if you can't even personalize it to the property that you're looking at buying. So that's pretty obvious. It's self-explanatory. I encourage you to think outside of the box. I encourage you to be bold, to print up multiple copies of a, an application or a proposal for finance. Go to multiple banks and be bold about it. Let them know that you're seeing other banks. Let them compete. And you too will have bank managers say to you, hey, if I promise to give you this money, will you promise not to go to the opposition? When you have a good deal, banks will know it, they'll appreciate it. And by the way, something else happens. I always say, if you owe the bank, you know, $5 million, you've kind of got a problem. But if you owe the bank $500 million, they've got a problem. And here's what happens when you owe the bank tens of millions of dollars. They call you and they say, 
how would you like to go out to lunch this week? And you like going out to lunch, so you're about to say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, but you're also a smart person. You say, hang on a minute, we went out to lunch last week and you paid, so you probably want me to pay this time. But before you can even say that, they'll say, it's on us again, as usual. Why? When you owe the bank tens of millions of dollars, do they invite you to lunch and offer to pay? And no, the answer is not to make sure that you're still alive so that you'll still be paying the mortgage next month. They're not that concerned about that, to be really blunt, because even if you do snuff it, they can take the building or the building will be sold and they'll get their money back. So they're not concerned about that. No, the reason they invite you to lunch and offer to pay is that they just had a lump of 50 million come in. And before going out to the public and lending it to people they've never heard from, they'd rather lend some more money to you because you they know that you always do one thing without fail. And that is you always pay the mortgage on time. And by always paying the mortgage on time, you're the ideal client. So they're going to say to you, hey, we just had some money come through. Do you have any deals in the pipeline that you'd like us to fund? And that's how you want it to be. People used to fear going to the bank because the biggest fear in the world was not the fear of some untimely death or some horrible accident. The biggest fear in the world, believe it or not, to this day, is the fear of public speaking. And the second biggest fear in the world always used to be going to the bank manager to ask for money. And here's the thing, I never go to the bank to ask for money. I offer them a mortgage, a topic perhaps for another podcast. But who's the mortgagee and who's the mortgagor? I don't ask the bank for a mortgage that would make me the mortgagee because they gave it to me. No, the bank is the mortgagee and I am the mortgagor. I give the bank a mortgage in return for which they give me the money. It's a fair transaction. We'll explore that on another day, but it's a shift in thinking that once you get it and once you embody it, you will have the ability to get banks offering you more money than you'd know what to do with. It's singularly why commercial real estate is such a great way to go. Thank you for being here. I look forward to seeing you again soon. And in the meantime, I want to wish you, as always, successful investing. Thank you so much. 